violence in scripture, in our own holy texts, and what we do to make sense out of that. Try to grapple with the question of whether or not uh, God, as we know, is a God of violence, just because violence so permeates the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament. We conclude by suggesting that that was not the case. That while violence is indeed present in scripture, it's used for a particular purpose, namely to restore equilibrium, to restore order to a world that has gone amok. Today, we spend time with the way in which violence permeates our popular culture. And to be sure, we won't explore every possible avenue, but try rather to look at major genres of the popular experience and see the way in which violence has shaped how we think about it and how we think about each other. And as we have done in the past, we begin first by asking for God's grace. And so I invite you to join me in prayer. The Lord be with you. O oh God, who binds us together and orders our shared life, quell the hatred which enslaves us, forgive the violence we embrace and portray, and summon the better angels of our nature to reflect the image of the God who made us. Through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There are clearly any number of vehicles for beginning to get a sense of what violence looks like in popular culture. But for the purposes of this morning's conversation, I'm going to suggest that we take a brief look at uh, a section from the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. Think about Revelation as being part of the popular literature of today. This John of Patmos trying to say something about the second coming. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, You are just, O Holy One, who are and were, for you have judged these things. Because they shed the blood of saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch them with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God, who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom and was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits. 
spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Well, see, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going to be naked and exposed to shame. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It's done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, such had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the walking cup and the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God from the plague of the hail. So fearful is that plague. <coughs> so, God of Patmos wrote roughly 2,000 years ago, and we think that we need to label literature as potentially violent and unfit for teenagers in our world today. Truly, there is violence displayed in popular culture, and Pete describing a God of wrath, and again, as we discussed in our last conversation, but more importantly, using images that can grab the popular mind and shape the way in which they think about their faith, the way in which they think about God's future coming and future reign. There are a number of other passages that we've provided for you for uh, your exploration uh, on your own and would encourage you to take a look at them as well. In terms of today's discussion, three things that we'd like to try and achieve. First, to explore the ways in which violence has been portrayed in American culture. Second, to examine the interaction between various cultural expressions of violence and America's history. And finally, to discuss opportunities for faith communities to shape public perceptions of violence and its cultural expression. You might be surprised at this assertion, perhaps best made by Steven Pinker in a magisterial work entitled The Better Angels of Our Nature. But his hypothesis, well documented, is that the amount of violence in society has actually declined dramatically since prehistoric times. Think about this for a moment, if you will. Don't suspend your imagination, but try and think about the world that existed before us. From a time of prehistoric hunter-gatherers, and then the evolution into a hunter-horticulturalist society. Mortality was primarily due to small-scale warfare, war between clans and tribes. And while the numbers may have been relatively small, so a score here, 30 there, the proportion of the population decimated by this violence was huge. The impact of war on these free nation states cannot be overestimated. In some cases, you have tribes engaged in warfare losing up to 60% of their membership in a single battle. So staggering. If in fact that were to happen in the United States today, in a single battle we'd lose between 65 and 190 million 
of our fellow citizens. When we think about violence, put it in the larger arc of history. Eventually, those agrarian and hunter uh, uh, states transitioned from clans and tribes into political nation states. One of the functions of these nation states was to calibrate the use of its resources. And in fact, most of them regularly limited the amount of national resource that was to be committed to battle and to warfare. What that meant was a consistent decline in mortality from war. How much of a decline? Even in the worst of the European territorial wars in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, not more than 7% of the national population was killed as part of the warfare that was ongoing. Throughout the 20th century, the two great world wars, America lost 1% of its population. Compare that to the 60% of the population being wiped out by tribal warfare in early historic times. We see a continuing decline in the rate of violence in the United States. How many of you can remember seeing a gruesome film, perhaps uh, 15 years ago, called The Gangs of New York? A sense of just horrible nativism, uh, essentially the battles between those who were second and third generation Americans with recent, primarily Irish immigrants. Even there, we see a decline in the rate of violence happening on our streets. Painful as it is for us to view homicides, carjackings, assaults in this country today, in our own community today. The rate of that violence is far less than it was in any other time in our history. Nevertheless, we're, as a society, we've been captured, I would argue, by those images as part of our own popular culture. Images of violence in politics, entertainment, personal behavior, and even our national conscience. I remember a number of years ago, early in my tenure as the chief executive officer of the Missouri Hospital Association, and the president of Six Years of Seminary, the SSM, came to a board meeting and asked for us to begin abandoning all use of violent language in our conversation. And I think most of us looked at her and said, what are you talking about? And she said, how about using the phrase dot points, not bullet points? How about, not, how about having a strategic plan and not a war plan? How about not doing battle with your competitors? What that reminded all of us although perhaps was a bit corny in the moment, was the way in which popular images of language have infused our daily life and our culture. Let's take a look first at literature. You need to understand that whether we're talking about uh, the authors of the Greek world both narrative and poetic, biblical authors, or even Shakespeare, 
literature was intended for the elite. So talking about literature as a dimension of popular culture really didn't uh, come into our consciousness until the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, the development of public education primarily at the behest uh, of the British, and an increased rate of literacy among the population. The first time we see violence portrayed as an element of mass popular literary culture are in the dime novels uh, of the Victorian era, not only on the European continent, but certainly in the United States as well. Uh, little novels that you pick up for barely a pence, stick them in your hip pocket, and read through them. And these, whether they were tales of the Wild West or life on the streets of Chicago and New York, uh, they were filled with images of cowboys, Indians, bad hombres, and gangsters. That changes, however, with Truman Capote's uh, first nonfiction crime novel, In Cold Blood, when as a matter of not only popular culture, but high literature, we see violence portrayed in all of its gruesomeness, all of its gore, all of its pathos. <coughs> Perhaps most intriguing, when I mentioned earlier in uh, this morning's conversation that we wouldn't cover the entire spectrum of violence in popular culture, we'd look at several unique dimensions. The one that has caught my attention uh, the most is the impact of race and slavery on the way in which we deal with violence in this country, including in literature. Uncle Tom's Cabin, classic by Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1852, speaks to violence uh, and its impact on slaves. Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell's 1936 classic, uh, involves a portrayal of the black experience amid a violent culture. And certainly, Kyle Onstott's Mandingo portrays the African male as a beast, uh, a beast to be controlled, uh, a beast who is inherently predisposed uh, to violence. But nothing. Nothing so engages the entire American public in the nature of race and slavery and its impact on the way we see ourselves as either a pacifist or violent society as Alex Haley's Roots, published in 1976 and the subsequent television series the next year. Many cultures, many societies have used violence as a vehicle for exploring their own history and their own development. But this peculiar institution of slavery based on race provides a unique experience for we Americans. Music, another genre of the popular experience. And again, race and slavery play a prominent role. The most uh, frequently attended form of popular theater in the 19th century were traveling minstrel shows with white folk dressed up in blackface portraying dim-witted, unmotivated black people. Racial stereotype in its worst possible form. The birth of the hip-hop culture continues that tradition in a very different way. In the 1970s, and especially with the subsequent emergence 
of so-called gangster rap. Problem with that is it portrays only one dimension of the urban black experience. It's grounded, as one author noted, in misogyny, homophobia, the glorification of gangs, drugs, and senseless violence. So we might respond, whether it's to the blackface of minstrel shows or to the offensive language and behavior portrayed in rap music with horror. Yet what we forget is that in gangster rap, we have an honest dimension of black experience. There really is anger in our urban core. There really is alienation. There really is a sense of hopelessness and frustration with institutional racism and police brutality. My point being simply that we would be well advised as people of faith and citizens of this nation if we understand not only the genre itself, but its purpose and how it functions within the community. Not only how it forces us to back away and offends us, but how it also tries to engage us in a conversation about what's wrong with American society and where we might change. Race has also been a profound uh, component of our cinematic uh, experience uh, used to ex both explore uh, and intensify the experience of violence. Birth of a Nation, now a fully discredited film for its racial stereotyping. Uh, D.W. Griffith's work in 1915, Gone with the Wind, again, the motion picture adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's work, and uh, Shaft and other black exploitation films of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, uh, offer an increasingly violent portrayal of black folk in this country and the black experience. Uh, men often portrayed as cocaine dealers, pimps, and violent enforcers in an urban culture in which no one, especially white people, are safe. The prominence of race and violence in television series and news coverage also uh, is a feature of who we are as a nation. What about video games? So much has been made about uh, the increasing violence to which our children are exposed and engaged in for hours at a time. Statistics are rather alarming to me. 97% of 12 to 17 year olds and 90% of 8 to 16 year olds. Okay. So essentially over 90% of kids play video games. 89% of which are violent. They're not playing Lego games. They're playing violent games. In the United States alone, video gaming is a $14.2 billion annual industry. And why is it so attractive? The makers of video games understand three things. That children in that age bracket have an increasing need for personal autonomy. They want to be able to do their own thing, claim their own time, claim their own space. They want to achieve some sense of competence and mastery over something, and video gaming gives them that ability. And they desire a sense of relatedness and community, and especially online video gaming, 
can provide them with that sense of community. It's interesting to me that when uh, I've talked with a number of my colleagues and friends who have uh, senior level military experience, especially in the Navy and the Air Force, and I ask them what makes a good pilot, almost the first thing they say is a kid who grew up playing video games. Why? Their eye-hand coordination is superb and they're used to working with small buttons to achieve lethal ends. Rather amazing, isn't it? The impact of popularized violence on our children is also staggering. Well, the research uh, with respect to violence in literature and music, despite Tipper Gore's pronouncements to the contrary, is not very solid, there is virtually no question about the impact of violence uh, that accrues to video gaming, television, and films, probably because of its visual, its multi-sensory impact. And what is it? First of all, in those children we see increased aggression, increased fear, a desensitization to actual and screen violence, and an increased appetite for violence. How often have we as mature adults found ourselves being almost immune, inoculated against the violence we see in news coverage, the loss of life, whether it's to fires or to war or to famine. We're adults with well-formed cerebral cortexes of vast wealth of experience. Can you imagine a child whose emotions, whose intellect is still being shaped, being inundated hour after hour, day after day, by images that they don't understand, and how that affects the way in which they see themselves and their world. What we have to come to grips with is the old axiom about news coverage and the way it impacts uh, our society. The fact of the matter is, if you want to make a profit in literature, cinema, video gaming, television, if it bleeds, it leads. NOVA and Frontline are not the two most popular programs on television. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is not going to win the Academy Award, and certainly not the Attendance and Profit Award. We as a nation like violence, and those who provide it know what to look for. At your table are sheets that have uh, a number of points on them, including a summary of today's discussion, some resources for your own exploration, but also discussion questions. And I'd like now to move from this part of the conversation to table thought, um, perhaps taking uh, the next 15 minutes or so at your respective tables to look at, review, and discuss the questions before you. And then I'll pull us back together as a group uh, to talk about them. Uh, the first of which, do you believe American culture is significantly shaped by violence? If so, how is your perspective informed by actual 
incidents of violence, or its fictional depiction as various forms of popular media. If not, what are the prevailing forces that continue to mold our national identity? The second question, do you personally enjoy violent literature, music, films, television, or video games? If so, why? If not, why not? What depictions of violence especially trouble you, and why? And then last, uh, the purpose really of this entire series, exploring violence, how might the church and people of faith respond to the violence portrayed in popular culture, as well as the reality of actual violence? I urge you to engage at your respective tables. Uh, and if you're at uh, a table with relatively few people, feel free to join one of the others. We'll convene again in about 15 minutes.